invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We'll be reading together verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy word, Romans chapter 5. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask him to help us as we study his word. Lord, we thank you that you are our rock and our refuge. You are our hope. You are the one who is filled with steadfast love toward us. And so, Lord, we come now with all of our burdens, with all of our struggles, all of our tribulations. We pour them out to you. Lord, we look to you to speak a word of grace and a word of hope to us. We thank you for your spirit who dwells in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of faith. And we thank you for the Bible. And we ask that you, O Holy Spirit, would come now and for Christ's sake, would work this truth deep within our hearts that we might bear much fruit for the glory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you've ever shopped for houses before, you may have had the experience of walking into a house and having your real estate agent begin to to share with you all the benefits of this particular house. And all the while, you are looking at something that is just this glaring issue. Perhaps it is uh, a dysfunctional layout in the house. Perhaps it is a, a strange smell. Perhaps it is this huge crack through the wall that you know indicates foundation problems. When we moved here in 2014, uh, we went to look at one house, and it was uh, fortunately raining. Uh, and as we entered, walked into the house, the, the, the entryway outside of the front door was, was filled with standing water several inches. And so we walk in, and uh, again, the, the real estate agent begins to talk about how this house uh, would fit our needs. And, and very soon she said, I'm, it's good that we came when it was raining, right? Uh, <laughs> let's go. Well, here we are in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, particularly we're focusing on verses 3 to 5. Dean unpacked for us last week all the the benefits of our justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ. The, The peace that we have with God, the access that we have with God, the joy that we have in our future hope of sharing in the glory of God. And yet you can hear the objection. You can Here, that glaring issue that might be raised. Well, sure, Paul, that's great. But have you noticed that we're suffering? Have you seen the tribulations that we're walking through? Sure, I can try to rejoice in this, you know, pie in the sky, by and by, future hope of glory. But I live in the present, Paul. What about now? What good does that future hope give me in light of all that I'm suffering today? Of course, Paul isn't blind. Paul 
was a man, even as we've just seen from 2 Corinthians 4, who never closed his eyes to the reality of, of suffering, of present affliction. And here he seems to anticipate this objection, this glaring issue that might, might put uh, to rest and drive away all the benefits of our justification. And so he says something incredible there in verse 3, not only do we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice? We rejoice in sufferings, Paul? What are you talking about there? Well, actually, it's even more amazing, more paradoxical than it may seem on the surface. The word rejoice, it means to boast in, to glory in, to exult. Think of the, the triumphant confidence and joy and celebration that happens when your team wins a national championship and you, you rush the field and everyone's shouting, we are the champions, we are number one, right? Based on what someone else has done, based on what your team has done, you, you've entered into their joy, you've entered into the victory. Well, here is Paul saying that because of what Jesus has done, Christians can and should have the same confidence, the same triumphant joy, not only in response to the hope of the glory of God, but even in response to present tribulation. And notice, Paul here is saying we're not just to sort of passively submit to our suffering. We're not just to, to grin and bear it stoically with a stiff upper lip. We're, we're not just to feel sorry for ourselves and mope about like Winnie the Pooh's friend Dior. Right? We, as God's people, are called to exult in suffering, to triumph, to rejoice, even to boast in them. And not just in the midst of them, mind you. Right? Not just as you experience them or, or in spite of them, but in them, Paul says. On account of them, they themselves are the, the ground of our joyful and confident boasting, Paul is saying. Now, hopefully you're scratching your head and you're saying, how can this be, Paul? Why would we ever think to rejoice in our sufferings? Are we Christians just those who morbidly enjoy pain for pain's sake? Or, or do we deny that there really is any true pain in our suffering? Of course not. Like Paul knew, you know. So often suffering, it feels like it just knocks the breath out of you, knocks the wind out of you. It lays you low. And yet it's those very sufferings of which Paul can say that Christians rejoice in, boast in. And we do it, he says, because we as Christians know three things. We know what our suffering is not, first. Second, we know what our suffering produces, and third, we know the love of God outpoured. We know what our suffering is not. We know what our suffering produces, and we know the love of God outpoured. Let's think about these three things this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. First, we know what our suffering is not. Remember the context. In chapters 1 to 4, Paul has been unpacking the gospel, the good news of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And now in chapter 5, verse 1, he has taken this turn to begin to discuss the benefits of justification. But if we have been justified by God, if we have been declared righteous in God's sight through faith in the righteousness and in the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior, if Jesus has died in our place as our substitute, as the one who bore God's wrath and the punishment for our sins, then we know what suffering is not. 
Suffering is not punishment. For the Christian, suffering is not punishment. We are not being punished for our sins. Because Jesus has been punished for our sins. Jesus has taken away the guilt of our sin by bearing God's wrath in our place. There is now no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has suffered the deadly curse on our behalf, the curse that we deserved. He has taken it. And that changes everything about how we view our suffering. If you've seen the, the movie, The Sound of Music, the musical, you probably remember the, the song that Maria and Captain Von Trapp sang as they realized that they were falling in love or had fallen in love with one another. And the chorus includes this classic line, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. Every time I hear that line, I think, thank you, Mr. Rogers and Mr. Hammerstein for giving us such a beautiful quote-unquote, illustration of an anti-gospel theology. Right? Thank you. It's just a preacher. It's like you're just, you're just handing it to a preacher. Right? I must have done something good. It, they're giving us this summary of what we all think by nature. And sometimes we even say, you've either heard it or you've said it yourself, right? You must have been living right to have that good thing happen to you. Or as I heard someone say this past week, man, they must have been baptized by the right person, right, when they were a kid to be as successful as they were, right? It's this idea of karma. It's sort of the, you know, you put your quarter in the coin slot and out comes the bubble gum, right? You get good by doing good is what that song is teaching us. And of course, the opposite is implied in Maria's words as well, isn't it? We could rephrase the lyrics like this. Nothing comes from nothing. So if you're suffering or sad, somewhere in your youth or childhood or yesterday or today, you must have done something bad. That's the opposite. And that's the way we often think about our suffering. Getting bad comes from doing bad. Sometimes we express this theology from a heart of, of pride and self-righteousness. I've heard people say it like this, what did I ever do to deserve this? What did I ever do to deserve this? Or other times we express it from a, a heart of, of guilt and, and shame and despair. God is punishing me for what I have done. Now here's the sober truth the Bible teaches us. If you are not a Christian this morning, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, then yes, it is true. The wrath of God is already being revealed. You are being punished for your sins. You are experiencing a foretaste of the punishment that you will receive when Jesus Christ returns on the last day. But if you are a Christian, if you are resting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, the Bible is clear. Your suffering is not judicial punishment. It is not condemnation. For Jesus has already been condemned in your place. I've quoted them before, but the words of Augustus Toplady are so beautiful in this regard. Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost farthing paid whatever your people owed. Nor can God's wrath on me take place when sheltered by thy righteousness and covered by thy blood if thou my pardon hast secured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand. 
first from my bleeding surety's hand, and then again from mine. Do you hear what Toplate is saying? There is no double jeopardy in God's courtroom. When Jesus makes payment for our sins, God will not later exact payment from us. We know what our suffering is not. It is not punishment. We have a peace with God that can never be removed. We have an access to God that can never be denied. Because that peace, that access has been granted to us by a God who does not ever change. And so we must always view our suffering through the lens of the gospel, of the cross of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has suffered the punishment for our sins so that we no longer have to. Now maybe the question comes up, well then, if tribulations are not suffering, if our suffering is not punishment, then what is it? What is our suffering then? Well, the Bible answers by saying that our suffering, our tribulations, are God's fatherly discipline. Even as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. The Christians in Corinth were coming to the Lord's table at odds with one another. Right? They were not loving one another. They were not sacrificing themselves and denying themselves on behalf of one another the way that Jesus had, had laid down his life and sacrificed and, and denied his rights for them. And so Paul says right, that because of their failure to love one another as Christ had first loved them, they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves when they come to the Lord's table. Many of them were sick, he says. Some of them had even died. But then he says that this judgment of God was not punishment. It was not condemnation. On the contrary, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two: 32, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, God declares us, we who have believed in Jesus Christ, he declares us not only righteous, but he declares us adopted sons and daughters. And he treats us as sons and daughters. He disciplines us. The trials that he sends, that he ordains, that he allows, they are from our Father's hand of discipline. Hebrews 12 puts it so beautifully. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that brings us to our second point. It's not just that the Christian knows what suffering is not. It's not punishment. It's discipline. The Christian also knows what suffering produces. Look at verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In, in this, this chain of linked graces, Paul sounds a lot like James in James 1, a lot like Peter in First Peter 1. And all three of them are reminding us that, that suffering is not pointless. It is not meaningless, but rather God has a divine purpose for our trials. It reminds me of one of those, perhaps you've seen the, the, the Rube Goldberg book or the Rube Goldberg machine and this, this, this crazy, fantastical sort of uh, route by which uh, to accomplish a very simple task, a very complicated way to accomplish a simple task. Now, our suffering certainly doesn't work mechanically, mechanistically the way those Goldberg machines worked. But the same principle is at work. God uses afflictions. What to us perhaps seems like this very convoluted, complex way 
to accomplish a very simple task, our maturity, our holiness, our sanctification, to make us more like Jesus. Because there is no other way to glory than through grief. Acts 14.22 is a verse you need to memorize. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way to the end of the roller coaster. But through the loops and the twists and the turns and the drops, the suffering of the path is the only way to get to the end. Suffering is the only path to glory. And it's by means of this suffering that God is preparing us for glory. Look at Paul's little golden chain here. Suffering produces endurance. Trials, he says, work in us a strength and a firmness and a, a perseverance, a constancy, an ability to run the race set before us. Right? It's the difference between you as a freshman in college and you as a senior in college. Right? It's the difference between the raw recruit and the battle-hardened veteran who can stare death in the face and continue to fight. God is like a blacksmith. A blacksmith that, 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 that heats and cools and beats and hammers away at the steel to temper it, to enable it to, to harden and to withstand even greater forces. And God, through trials, is, is tempering us. Through our suffering, he is producing endurance in our hearts. But then Paul goes on, endurance brings about character, proven character. The word that Paul uses is a word that we could translate as testedness. The quality, the, the results of being tested, being tried, and, and having stood the test, having passed the test. Peter in 1 Peter 1 uses a similar, similar illustration of, of gold that is tested and tried by fire. The impurities being separated away, the, the impurities being scooped away and scraped away so that all of that is left is, is pure gold refined gold, genuine and pure gold. Here, Paul is saying the same thing. God refines us through suffering spiritually. Through suffering, through endurance of trials, our character is proven. What's left is, is what the Lord wants to be in us, a love for him and obedience to him. It's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And as God works character in us through endurance, he increases our hope, Paul says. For as we suffer, we learn more and more deeply, that the God who is proving us, the God who is refining us, is a God who can be relied on. He is a God who is faithful and true. And so suffering works out, as it were, our hope muscle. That without these suffering, without these trials, would atrophy, would weaken. God works it out. He, he increases our confidence in his promises, our hope and all that is to come. Afflictions, do they not? Don't you know this in your own experience? They cause our heart to, to look away from this world, to look to the world to come, to look 
to those unseen and eternal realities that we just read of in 2 Corinthians 4. And so we must never view our suffering as unrelated, unconnected to future glory. Do you see what what Paul is saying here? Our present trials have a God-ordained future orientation. We might say an eschatological orientation. We are, every time we suffer now, we are being prepared for what is to come. God is strengthening our hope. And so Paul's going to say later in this book that our trials, our suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. As we just saw again in 2 Corinthians 4, it is through trials, through suffering, that God is producing an eternal weight of glory that we long for and that we rejoice in. So do you see how you can rejoice and exult and boast in your sufferings? Because you know not only what that suffering is not, you know what it is producing. You know how God is growing you through it. Well, finally, Paul wants to give us one last reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings. And he gives it to us in verse 5, and it's this. Because we as Christians know the love of God outpoured. He declares there that Hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us. I'm sure that you can recall some situation in which you had put your hope in someone or something that did disappoint you, right? That did make you feel ashamed in front of other people. Maybe you invested your money in a company that you thought was going to, you know, knock it out of the park. But they went bankrupt. Maybe you Believe the promises of someone who turned out to be a fraud, a shyster. Maybe you followed advice that you thought was really good advice, but it ended up being incorrect. It ended up being wrong, or, or even worse, it, it ended up right, hurting you and hurting other people. And all of a sudden, here you are, disappointed, embarrassed, humiliated, maybe even disgraced and dishonored in the eyes of men. And yet, what does Paul say? The Christian hope will never put us to shame. It will never betray us. It will never turn out in the end to be nothing but a mirage in the desert. It is true. It is lasting. It is a confidence that persists in the face of all of our suffering, the worst of circumstances. How do we know this, Paul says? How do we know that this is the case? How do we know that this hope will not disappoint us? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, God's love is is not just a a reason why we know hope will not disappoint, but because hope is the product of proven character, which is the product of endurance, which is the product of suffering. And God's love outpoured is a reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings. He has lavished his love upon us through his gift of the Holy Spirit, a gift that every single one of you who believe in Jesus received when you first believed It's not a second blessing that Paul is speaking of here, but it is the gift that is given to every believer. In our hearts, we subjectively experience God's objective love for us. We experience within, because of the Holy Spirit's work within us. And you notice that the Spirit doesn't just give us a trickle of God's love. The Spirit pours out the love of God, like a dam that is breaking The love of God is lavished upon us. He assures us persuasively that God loves us 
Romans 8, Paul will say that the Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons and daughters of God. But here, Paul focuses on another way the Spirit assures us of God's love. By continually reminding us of the love of God demonstrated by sending his Son to die for us while we were still sinners. You see that in verse 8? This is how we know God's love. This is how he shows it to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's love is contra-conditional. It is against all reason or inducement to love us. There is no reason that God should love us. There is no cause within us. But God loves us because he loves us. And our unworthiness only serves to magnify the greatness of his love. As we know his love more and more deeply, we are able to rejoice more and more fervently, even in the most difficult of circumstances. How can we not? How can we not? Because no matter what is happening to us, no matter what will happen to us, we know this one thing is certain. God loves us with an everlasting love. And nothing can separate us from his love in Jesus Christ. Jesus loves us. The Spirit loves us. And God, through Christ, by his Spirit, is causing all things to work together for good. We're not closing with this hymn, but we could have. God moves in a mysterious way. You fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast and fold every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, writes William Cooper, but sweet will be the flower. We believe this because God loves us, because we know the love of God outpoured by his Holy Spirit within our hearts. We can rejoice in our sufferings, no matter what you are going through this morning. No matter what you have gone through this past week or what might encounter you this coming week, the cross of Jesus tells you that God loves you with an everlasting love, a love that was willing to sacrifice his one and only son for you, to make you a wretch, his treasure. You are accepted by the Father, and nothing can take that away from you. Nothing will change the way that God feels towards you no matter what you suffer, and therefore you can rejoice. You can rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that God is using it to make you a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, more like your Savior, more willing to suffer, more willing to sacrifice, willing and able by his Spirit to live according to his word, to have a hope that will never make you ashamed. So let's go to the table and celebrate together and boast not only in our Lord Jesus Christ, but boast even in our sufferings as we eat and drink broken vessels, jars of clay, in which the power of the gospel shines forth. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. Lord, come now, work it in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.